0: Hello, and welcome to episode 37 of Diamonds Are for Gender. I'm Sam Livingston-Grey, and here is my co-host, Coraline Ada Emke.
1: Your co-host on Greater Than Code, Sam, just as a gentle reminder. We have an incredible guest today, Emily Gorszinski is joining us. By title, Emily G is a senior data scientist at Simple, but by practice, they are a transgender activist, hockey player, and technologist passionately working in the intersection of computing and society. Their passions include technology ethics, regulation of computing, and of course, posting selfies on Twitter. Don't we all love that? Hi, Emily.
2: How's it going? Thank you for having me.
1: It's going great. So what should we know about you for people who don't already know you from Twitter fame? What makes you unique and special? And what are your superpowers?
2: I don't really know what makes me unique. I think my superpowers is I'm very good at complaining very publicly. Um, and that's really what my Twitter is all about. But no, I guess the thing that makes me unique is just I've had a very strange kind of career entering tech. And um, being in tech, I didn't study computer science. I didn't plan to be a data scientist. I just kind of stumbled into this. And along the way, have managed to gather a really unique array of experiences that um, have kind of pushed me towards where I am now and what I'm working on. Yeah, you know, most of my background is in actually sort of Abstract mathematics, which is not like the most common thing that we use code for. But uh, I've turned that into um, weird kind of work experience in like epidemiology and clinical psychology. I've run clinical trials, stuff like that. So it's kind of a different path than what most people take uh, coming into data
1: science. Was data science something that always interested you?
2: Honestly, no. I wanted to build airplanes. I wanted to be a fighter pilot when I was a kid. And that was never going to happen because of my vision, because I didn't work hard enough in school to get into the academy or anything like that. Um, so I, I decided that I wanted to build fighter planes. And so that's what I went to college to study. And when I was there, I, I kind of fell in love with math instead and using computers to solve math problems at humans can't. Um, so that's really what I focused on, And my goal was I was going to be a math professor. I was going to write you know fancy computer algorithms to solve complicated problems. and uh, it turns out that didn't really happen either. I never went to grad school. Uh, I ended up getting really sick as an undergrad and taking a bunch of time off. And when I came back, I said, I cannot do this grad student salary for seven years. There is no way. Um, so I, I entered industry and I did eventually get to work on fighter planes, and it turns out that working on fighter planes is exceptionally boring. <laughs> and it also <laughs> kind of s- stinks. And yeah, I realized I was building weapons and just decided that I didn't want to be doing that anymore.
1: What's your first data science job?
2: That's kind of a complicated one. I guess the first time I had it, the position title data scientist was that was simple. And I've only been there for about nine months at this point. But I've been working in data for 15 plus years. We just called it different stuff signal processing, quantitative analytics, um, data engineering, database whatevers. The term data scientist itself kind of has an interesting, very recent origin, because when companies started realizing that they had the ability to both generate and store data at scale, they realized that they didn't have people that knew how to do anything with it, and that most of those people were in academia. So they threw a bunch of money at them and said, we can still call you a
0: scientist, just come work for us. <laughs> And uh, I imagine that the employment situation in academia is such that that works pretty well.
2: Yeah, it's 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 a really big difference when you're like doing your fifth year of a postdoc or whatever and making 35K and somebody dangles, you know, six figures in front of you and says, you can work 40 hours a week, not
1: 140. I can see why that might be a motivating factor. Definitely. Yeah. So one of the interesting things to me about data science, um, I've been interviewing a lot lately and um, a couple of the companies that I have talked to have data science departments and I'm seeing a lot more, at least on the gender axis, a lot more diversity in data science than in general tech. Has that been your experience, Sam?
2: That has definitely been my experience in tech oriented companies that have data science teams even my team is uh, very diverse uh, that I work with now. That's not been my case for people who have kind of had that traditional role coming up through traditional engineering companies like the aerospace firms, that kind of thing. But I do think that a lot of what's new, what's being developed in data science now has to do with computer vision type problems, you know, things like self-driving cars and uh, algorithms that can process images to classify to to judge you know what is the style of this object or whatever um, and a lot of that work is motivated by work in cognitive psychology and uh, visual neuropsychology studying the visual cortex so a lot of people are coming over from that space because they're working with convolutional neural networks there they're working with all of this technology they're familiar with the python libraries and a lot of them tend to be women A lot of people that are working in that field in academia are women. So I think there's been some migration from that area. And I think that has helped encourage more women who are very talented to see, oh, hey, there is this career in technology that works for me and I can do this.
0: So I'm curious about the role that uh, background and training plays in all of this. Are there multiple career paths into data science? Is it, you know, pretty much straight through math or do you get to recruit from STEM all over the place or what?
2: I think it's STEM all over the place. I know people without college degrees working in data science. I know people with PhDs working in data science. I know people with PhDs in, in psychology. I know people with degrees in, in economics and accounting and all sorts of fields. Math is one aspect of it, but data science is a really broad field with a lot of different requirements, and I don't think that there is a single best career path to go through. Um, You're not going to do great data scientists if you just hire seven computational mathematicians. They're just going to do the same thing. There's a lot of exploration. There's a lot of diversity needed to get to the answers and the insights that a team is supposed to deliver.
0: That's really interesting. I guess whenever I see data science, I think of Python and statistics, and I have enjoyed Python in the past, and my stats classes that were algebra-based were fun, but the calc one was really, really hard for me. And I think that's something that I could do in another lifetime. But uh, that's really interesting to hear.
1: I've only um, dabbled in data science, working on machine learning algorithms, but I found it fascinating. But for me, the math was a real barrier because math is definitely not my strong point.
2: You know, it's, it's an interesting space because you do need to know some math or at least understand it to understand the output. But the way that data science tools are maturing now, it's like you can be I guess the best analogy is like you can be a JavaScript developer and you can be a very good JavaScript developer without needing to know anything about the stack or the heap or underlying memory models or assembly code or anything like that. You don't need to know all of the intricacies of linear algebra to understand what principal component analysis is. You just need to know this is the output. Here's how I use the APIs. So there's definitely a a lot of maturation that is happening within the field, and that is certainly something that has enabled more people to be able to come into data science and and to do things. Um, The technology I don't think is super mature yet, but it's definitely getting to that point.
1: That's um, pretty much the approach I was taking. The algorithms I I was using were implemented generally in C, and Ruby's really good at talking to C libraries. And I didn't have to understand the mechanics of what the algorithms were doing i just had to interact with them i had to select them of course and understand like conceptually what they were doing but it was mainly a matter of interfacing via apis and getting the data that i wanted and treating them as a black box
0: Mm -hmm. yeah you still have to know what questions to ask and what questions it's possible to ask right
2: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot of uh, sort of domain knowledge that you need to know in order to drive towards the right insights. And certainly, being able to know what the weaknesses of a certain algorithm versus another are uh, is a is a help. But um, I think that's why data science works. Uh, it's a really compelling team oriented approach uh, for a company. So if you have a good team that has you know somebody that that really groks all the math, uh, but somebody else that is really like domain savvy with the insights that's like a perfect pairing because the domain savvy person can point to sort of like a pre-filter from for the signal from the noise and then you know the math person can go and say oh okay like we we don't want to use a pca for this we want to use you know uh, k-means clustering because of you know blah, blah 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 that it's a really there's a lot of good opportunities for having that diversity having that range of experience on a team
1: how is data science used that simple
2: I want to be careful about how much we say here because uh, Simple is in the finance industry. um, So there's not much that we can reveal. What I can say is that as a data scientist at Simple, I work on product development. So I have a product team and we're looking, we're always looking to understand how people use money, save money, spend money. And our mission as a company is to help people feel comfortable with their money. So one of the things that we do is we look at how do we help them with it? How do we drive better customer experiences using data? And how do we understand our customers based on the data that we have?
1: I guess a lot of other companies, maybe in the financial space, are using it for fraud prevention as well. And then in other spaces for like recommendation engines, um, things along those lines.
2: Yep, there is definitely a lot of a lot of use of that. Um, There are companies out there that specialize in building things like fraud metrics, you know, they have access to massive data stores where they can look and and see what the, you know, the difference between a fraudster and a non fraudster is. So there's definitely some use for that within the finance space. Uh, But also, you know, within even things like retail space, like you you don't know, like people do retail fraud, that's still a, a thing that exists. So yeah, there are companies that work on that.
0: That's interesting. Mentioning um, the use of data science in uh, retail, for example, makes me think of my own sort of personal threshold for when it's okay to work at a company. Obviously, you decided that working in uh, construction of fighter jets was, was not for you. I haven't formalized it, but I feel like my own personal line is somewhere right around selling people stuff they don't need. I wonder how much, you know, in the field of data science crosses that particular line. And I guess more generally, are there ethical debates within the field? Are there uh, areas of discussion around that?
2: There are, yes. Data science is, is a field. This is one of my sort of uh, pet passions that has amazing ability to do unintentional harm. There's dozens of case studies out there. Uh, I'm sure you all know Karina Zona. Um, She gives a fantastic talk. Kathy O'Neill has an amazing book called Weapons of Math Destruction um, that goes into some case studies of that. You know, I've done some work in this space on my own. But yeah, data science does raise some interesting ethical questions because you're essentially inferring things about a person that may or may not be true that have material impact on what they experience and how they experience your product and how they get to move through the world. So it is a very tricky space to work in. Uh, As far as debates in the field, there are definitely people talking about it, but I want there to be more. I don't think that there's enough talk about, are we doing things ethically? Are we able to, to use these algorithms safely? Do we have ways to protect users from harm? I do a lot of work in tech ethics, and the way that I define it is that ethics is about the analysis of risk and the mitigation of harm. And that is something that comes from my experience working in medical devices and in doing clinical research. And it's not about never doing the wrong thing. It's not about getting 100% accuracy. It's about making sure that we have, as a team or as a company or as technologists, established transparent practices for assessing what the harm profiles are, taking steps to mitigate them, and having a framework for remediation when those things do go wrong. And I think that data science needs to do a lot better at that.
0: So with medical devices, I guess there's the sort of obvious case of the machine that delivers uh, orders of magnitude more radiation than it should because of a programming error. But how does that come up when you're doing data analysis? That was
2: Therac-25, for anyone that wants to look that up in Wikipedia. Um, that was device back in the uh, early 1980s. It ended up killing four people. When we look at data, there's all sorts of ways that we can learn from that case study, one of them being that A consequence of the ERC-25 and medical device regulation is that in order to put software on a medical device, depending on its risk profile, you don't have to go through the specific process, but you have to do a failure analysis. If you don't do a failure analysis, the FDA will not allow you to sell a medical device. Data science could really benefit from that. and There's a, a, a process called FMEA. I believe it stands for Failure Mode Effects Analysis. And it's a really fascinating thing that I really wish that we could do more, Just not just in data science, but software engineering in general, where you basically gather your team, you go through this brainstorming session, and you think of all of the ways that something could fail. It could be something like somebody pulls the plug out, somebody drops their phone, whatever. And then you rank each one of those failures on three axes from one to ten. The first being the severity of harm so what goes wrong if this failure happens like what is like how severe is is the harm given that it occurs uh what's the probability of harm if it happens so say you your failure is that your battery um explodes well what's the probability that harm happens if if the battery explodes well that might be like you know 100% right but if if it's you know the power goes out that harm might be like 1% like it's it has to be like a confluence of factors in order for harm to actually occur Um, So you have the the probability of harm, the severity of harm, and then the important one is the detectability of harm if it occurs. So how do you detect the failure if it occurs? Uh, So in medical device, a great example for this is, say you have an IV monitor and your failure mode is the power cord. Somebody trips on the power cord. What's the detectability? Like the severity of that could be very severe. Like if the pump stops pumping medicine, person might die. Uh, So the detectability, how do you detect if the power cord is out? And if you're just designing the device, you might be like, Oh no, that's, that's bad. Like it would be almost impossible. So that's going to be like a nine or a 10. Um, so then you go back through your, your design process and you say, okay, this is a really bad score. Let's build in a fail safe. And so the fail safe that we have in hospitals is if the power goes out for an IV pump, it makes an audible sound. It starts beeping really loudly, really annoying using a battery backup that takes that detectability score from like a nine down to like a three. And so that's kind of a process that we could learn from in data science and software engineering in general. Like, okay, what is the ways that this algorithm could fail and harm people? Well, maybe it gets trained on bad data. And so now you have an algorithm running in the wild and it adapts to bad data. And now all of your customers from May, all of their credit scores are bad. So they get charged a higher interest rate or something like that. That's a, a really evident way of harming somebody. And it's, might be hard to detect because it's really hard to validate input data, but it's something that could happen. So if we go through those exercises, we can start developing safer algorithms.
1: I think that model could be adapted even when the consequences of something going wrong just involve system downtime or just involve availability of a service. I mean, there's the scope isn't just limited to life or death situations or situations that severely impact an individual person's life but it sounds like they have more to do with just general resiliency.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's um, in physical engineering spaces. We go through processes like this all the time. Um, If you build a bridge, you go through a process like this. If you're building a, a factory or, or, you know, some sort of like power plant or anything like that, you definitely go through these, like what are all the failures? And it's an iterative process. And you take all three of those scores. They're all, they're all ranked from like one to 10, right? You multiply them all together that kind of gives you like a, an idea of where the highest risk things are. And so you start with the highest risk things, and then you kind of work your way down and, until you run out of money.
1: It's interesting what software development borrows from engineering and what it doesn't. We definitely want to consider ourselves engineers. That's been a, a long time habit of software developers to talk about software engineering. But it seems like we... Like to skip the hard parts, the parts that actually require discipline and actually require hard work, like planning for failure conditions, like detailed software is very opposed these days to detailed planning of any kind, documentation. All of these things are hard and we just simply avoid them, but they're, they're really core to true engineering as a discipline, right? it
2: very much is and you know software is is different by nature than physical engineering and you know people have rehashed this debate over and over and over but i i still fail to see any valid arguments that say that things like documentation are not part of the software developer's job things like you know risk analysis need to be part of that process and our industry has evolved around this idea of rapid deployment rapid delivery go 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 if you're not iterating fast enough you're not disrupting you're not being productive enough and you know my answer to that is if our entire industry is is built on skipping these necessary steps then we don't really have an industry we just have an accident waiting to happen
0: a distributed series of accidents really
2: yeah yeah pretty much okay. and you know there are great people out there uh, doing site reliability stuff doing operation stuff that have built in lots of safeguards for you know, when things go wrong, and that's great. And every operations engineer that I've ever talked to would really love to sit a dev down and say, stop coding <laughs> for like a week.
1: I just heard a story yesterday, in fact, about a friend of mine does DevOps work, and there was all sorts of pressure on him to get the code that was developed during the current sprint deployed so that sprint velocity was maintained So sort of like playing the numbers there and the chef framework that he is using in his job is not very resilient. And whenever he goes to deploy something to staging, he's running problems that could come back to bite the company in the ass when it comes time to move to production. He's feeling this pressure to get things deployed, but he has no confidence in the infrastructure at all. And the development team doesn't want to take the time to beef up that infrastructure because they're so busy delivering features. And that just sounds like a recipe for disaster.
2: Yeah, it certainly can be. And, you know, kind of to to cycle that back to data science, we have things like that all the time. And the the problem is it doesn't really work. Like you can patch a feature in software like you can write a hack and, you know, you write your comment and be like, this is a hack to get this out by Friday. And then you put it into your tech debt column. In data science, that's often not the case. Like you train these algorithms and they're like, you can't patch the training of them because under the hood, we we don't know how they work. We say, here's data, here's output. Okay. And then something happens like, you know, the self-driving car gets into an accident and they want to fix just that. Well, it's really hard to go and just fix that part of the algorithm that made that decision. It's almost impossible to do that. So that that rapid iteration, like people are really trying to do that in data science, but if you pay attention to just any any services that you use, like you'll see those failures pop up in in stuff that is built on machine learning. Just look at the ads that you get, you take an ad blocker off someday and and look at some of the absurd ads that you get every once in a while.
1: My favorite was when Amazon had a recommendation for me. It said, because you bought the zombie survival guide and it recommended a speculum to me, (laughs) I have a screenshot. I have proof because it was so absurd. And I'm like, what led to this particular recommendation? Like what data fed into this algorithm and decided that those two things were related? I have, I have no idea.
0: That is certainly more entertaining than the classic, you just bought a fire extinguisher. Let us recommend 10 more fire extinguishers to you. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> That's great.
1: So, Emily, we've talked about failure modes in software, and um, I would argue that what we're experiencing today is a failure mode in democracy. And there are lots of components to that from secret cabals working on healthcare reform to not allowing reporters access, to firing people who are investigating you. But the issues actually go back further than that with the voting process itself. We've seen a lot of, um, well, we've seen not enough discussion of disenfranchisement of voters, but even those who do manage to vote are not safe from failure modes. And I know you've done a lot of analysis of this. Would you like to talk about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this is a really interesting part of uh, my life and part of my work. So electronic voting machines, they're pretty ubiquitous. I just voted at with one yesterday um, here in Virginia. And, you know, my medical device experience has has taught me a lot about how software is regulated and working in that space, working for the government for so many years, I kind of have an ability to be able to quickly navigate through government documents and find where they are. I spent my Thanksgiving break last year. Um, This was right around the time that there was lots of allegations of possible impropriety and Jill Stein was doing the recounts and all that. So I decided to look into voting machines and to see if they're regulated by the federal government and to what extent they are and what the software process is. And what I ended up finding was that, and some other people have looked into this prior to me doing so, but I found that they aren't actually regulated. There's a set of voluntary guidelines that are out there. It's up to the state's to decide to what extent they implement them and several states i believe that there are 12 states don't implement or don't mandate any certification process and then there are some that that require full compliance to the a vbsg i forget exactly the acronym the um, voting standards uh, for voting machines um so I, I dug into this and i went through and i started reading the test reports so these manufacturers in order to to get them certified if you know they don't have to do certification if they want to use them in, say, Michigan, which doesn't require anything. You can just sell a voting machine to Michigan. They'll be like, great, this is awesome. But if you want to do it in a state that does have requirements, you have to go through this process. You have to have independent labs accredit the entire machine, not just the software, but the hardware. They want to check to see if things like, do they work in, in proper humidity, like high humidity? How, how much force does it take to break open the box? That kind of thing to, to get to the paper ballots. All sorts of, of stuff. Part of that process is reviewing the software. And so I started looking into the software review process and found that it is nearly non-existent. It is effectively the same as running software through a code linter. The things that they're looking for are things like line length violations. They're looking for the two functions have too many arguments is nesting too deep. There's no auditing of the vote handling pathways. There's no security audit mandatory. And in many cases, The inspectors do not actually review the source code itself. They only review the comments. Wow. Uh, wow. Yes. Okay. There are a small handful of companies that build voting machines. There are a small handful of labs that test them. Those companies that build them, they're generally small businesses and, you know, they have to report what their their tech stack is. And there's, these devices are built with a mix of C C sharp, C++, Java, COBOL, Visual Basic is in the stack it's a mess. The fact that something so critical to our nation's infrastructure can be so easily compromisable is a real concern.
1: Is there evidence that compromises have a
2: So that's interesting. Um, that's, a, that's sort of an evolving situation. Um, that was actually in the news this morning. So there's, there's all sorts of allegations about Russia's involvement in election tampering. Um, we know that they spun up lots of media efforts And even back in January, when the first CIA NSA report was published, they did say that Russia had attempted to explore our voting systems and our our voter registration roles. Recently, it's come out that they've also targeted the machines themselves. And now I saw a report that's unconfirmed that there may have been some efforts to modify vote tallies in these machines. Wow. None of that is is for certain I still maintain the stance that vote tallies have not been modified um because I don't see any evidence of it in the outcome but it would be really really easy to shift it in such a subtle way that it would be impossible to detect like Wisconsin was won by like 20,000 votes out of millions of people all you need to do at that point is shift a small percentage of votes in every machine in order to get that um and that would be almost impossible to detect like let's say you shifted 5 votes per machine for for 10,000 machines or for, for you know, 5,000 machines, whatever it might be that can have a huge impact, but you would never, ever detect that through statistical methods. Um, so it's really difficult to tell. Lots of people have looked into voter machine security and have said, this is really bad. Um, so it's definitely possible that we know that Russian hackers are very good. Um, so it's definitely possible that they looked into it and they've managed to hack the machines. All of that work is great. I think that the people doing that are are super intelligent for me, if I were Russia and I wanted to get bad code into the machines, I would profile every single person that works at ESNS and Diebold and figure out who's in financial trouble, who's got gambling debts, who's, you know, doing something unsavory in their personal lives and offer them, you know, here's $5,000, put this code into the machine. And the thing is, that's super easy to do because if you look at the test reports for all of these machines, and I've read all 31 test reports, That were available up to um, november of last year the fact that things like line length violations are getting flagged by software auditors tells me that there are not adequate development processes in place i can write a five-line python script that will tell me if my lines are too long it's a trivial amount of work to put that into a ci system if you're not doing that that to me means that you don't use um, ci properly it means that you don't have proper peer review practices. It means that you're probably not using version control properly. So it would be trivially easy for somebody to take a bribe from the Russian government to put a DLL or something into that software that would modify those,
0: those totals. And then, boom, you've compromised everything from that manufacturer.
2: And not only that, but it would pass the build checksum. So you would never be able to do the forensics after the fact. The only way you'd catch it is through source code analysis. And these are all closed source machines.
1: That brings to mind, I I did see some talk of open sourcing voting machine software. Open source is of course not a panacea, but putting your algorithm, making your algorithms and your code public is pretty intrinsic to security work in general, because like a secret algorithm is considered less safe, less reliable than a public algorithm, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. At the very minimum, the vote handling pathways need to be fully vetted. They need to be open. They need to be independently audited. The fact that they're not is just, it's astonishing. Um, it would be like getting on an airplane where nobody looked at the flight control code. You would never, ever do that. And, you know, flight control code isn't open source either, but we have processes, we have regulations for how that gets built. We have faith that it's probably not going to fail. And if it does fail, it's going to fail in some way that is detectable and safe. Um, voting machines, it's kind of the Wild West. There's no way of validating, like, where is the failure coming from? Is it coming from the scanner that scans the paper ballot? Is it the database? I mean, think of how many times you've had a Postgres error. Lots of these machines are taking those that scan data and just shoving it into Postgres.
0: Yeah, and that's assuming there even is a paper ballot to work with. I mean, a voter verifiable paper trail is seems to me to be like the bare minimum that you could possibly do. And it's it's a really important fail safe, but it's also a really expensive fail safe if you have to go back and employ an army of people to manually do a recount on paper, right?
2: Yeah, you know, random paper trail audits for the ballots would be, you know, mandatory random audits would go a long way. And you, you just build that into the expense of, of running an election. For me, that's a trivially small cost for securing voting, securing oh. democracy.
0: Yeah, that's right. I totally hadn't considered that sampling approach i was thinking more of like in the event of an actual recount but yeah you're right <laughs> that's that's much simpler
1: you said a lot of the manufacturers of voting machines are small businesses diebold of course is a an exception to that but who are the people working there and why is it that companies that are in the retail space can afford to, to pay six figures for a software developer to make sure that the Amazon recommendation engine works as expected, and yet we're not hiring those people to write something that's fundamental to the health of our democracy.
2: Yeah, so that's interesting. I, I often talk about this when I'm in a ranty mood. How there's two different software industries or two different tech industries. Um, there's the one that we're probably most familiar with, which is you know web focused and very public, and you know Silicon Valley and, and ping pong and beer and all of that. And then there's another tech industry, which is the offshoot from engineering, the offshoot from your typical, like your GEs and your Lockheeds and stuff like that. And I think that those companies still have a strong recruiting pull. Those industries don't overlap a lot. You can talk to a 20-year Java developer and have no idea what they're talking about. And likewise, they would you would tell them about all sorts of deployment scripts and like, I'm using Chef and Puppet, and they'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. And you could even be writing in the same language. You could be writing in the, a lot of the same technology. So I think that companies like voting machine companies, you know, I'm sure that their software developers are very good, but culturally it's very different. It doesn't have the same Silicon Valley mindset. It doesn't have the same, they're still rooted in in very much the old top-down waterfall management processes for the most part. Um, if you look at some of the Glassdoor reviews for some of these companies, employees report things like documented bugs being uh, left into production, even if they're they're possibly fatal bugs. Um because they don't want to go through the expense of re auditing the software. You you do have definitely some issues with uh, regulatory structure that need to be worked on that I, I strongly think that we need to reevaluate how we handle that. But yeah, it's it's a different world. And I just think that a lot of the praxis that we've developed has not translated over there.
1: I would um, um I would actually argue I started software development in the nineties and I grew up with Waterfall basically. And I would argue that voting machine software is probably well-suited to waterfall development if you can handle the expense of waterfall development, because waterfall to me brings up like very specific requirements, tests for very specific requirements, lots of planning, lots of documentation. That's what I want from voting software. I don't want voting software that's written in one week sprints.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely something to that. But, you know, the, the penalty of waterfall is that you end up Getting to that late cycle where you have to leave bugs in, where you have to leave flaws in. So there yeah. needs to be something in between agile and waterfall. And and you know people have developed things and to varying extents, but it definitely is interesting. Like I, I think that if you took a developer from any of the big tech companies out there now and you put them in that environment to work on on voting machines, they would last a week and be like, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with a world that doesn't have proper CI practice. I can't live with a world that doesn't have, that structures and and plans in this way.
0: For me, it would be pair programming, I'm sure. I would be surprised to find that that was a common practice. I'm curious about the career path for people who work in these companies too. I imagine that the incentives are much more uh, aligned towards people who work in the same job for five or 10 years, um, don't move around a lot, don't necessarily go to a lot of conferences. That's just my own personal bias. I don't know if there's any way to to check that.
2: I get that sense very strongly myself. And my experience there is I spent eight years working for a government contractor R&D firm that was very much like that. We had six years to vest our 401k. And yeah, you know, we had flexible hours and, and all sorts of the perks like that. And it was definitely a very, even though they claimed that it was not a hierarchical structure, it was a very hierarchical structure. Lots of people that worked at the Northrop Grumman's, things like that, saying how great it was, how lucky you millennials are to have a place like this. And, you know, you should be grateful for the money that we're giving you type of thing is a very old school mentality. And leaving it was hard because they do make it difficult to move around. They they do kind of lock you in and it's hard to get career exposure. I struggled a lot with exposure when I left and was trying to find a job because I didn't have any experience in the typical tech industry or the industry that we're familiar with. And so nobody knew what to do with my resume. Nobody knew what to do with who I was, what my background was. And it was definitely a struggle. Like I had to get permission to go to a conference. Like right now, like I just submit things to conferences now. Like, yeah, I just go (laughs) and I work remote so I can just I'm probably working from states that my company doesn't even know that I'm in at the moment sometimes, (laughs) you know, or countries. Yeah, or countries. I I spent a month working from Prague. I spent three weeks from in Germany. Like it's totally different experience.
0: Yeah, I cracked up just a minute ago when you said nobody knew what to do with my resume because, of course, for years I worried that my resume, right, I grew up with this advice that, you know, you didn't want to have too many short jobs on your resume because it would show that you were a job hopper, or that you weren't committed. I'm doomed. Right. The longest I've been anywhere was Living Social, where I was at for two years and I think seven months. Right. So it's hilarious to me to hear that when you came out of this company that you worked at for eight years, nobody knew what to do with your resume. It's just so totally backwards. I love it.
2: (laughs) It's, yeah, it's definitely, I don't know if it's a generational thing or, or what, but it is, there's definitely some polarity in that space. And yeah, I think kind of wrapping, cycling back to the voting machines, you know, I don't know anybody that works for them. I don't want to slander uh, their business or their their developers or anything like that. But when you read what they have to say in, on uh, Glassdoor and um, when you look at just the evidence that's out there, you can see the manifestation of a very different form of development thought.
0: I was curious earlier, you were talking about um, statistical methods of detecting uh, vote tampering, and there have been threads on Twitter about you know people finding curious patterns in some of the data that they've looked at. Uh, I wonder how valid any of those are. Uh, how would you be able to tell if you know votes looked weird?
2: If you were to ask five different statisticians, you'd get ten different answers,
0: <laughs> probably. I think
2: it's, it's... Yeah, probably. I think it's very difficult. I don't I don't know what method I would use. Um, I don't know how I would go about doing that, looking at that data. But there is interesting stuff out there. You know, it's easy to get into a trap when you see things that tell you things that you want to be true, um, because you look at data and you see a pattern in that data that fits what you want to believe. And you believe that the data is objective. So it's very easy to be like, oh, look at this. This precinct has a vote ratio of exactly... You know, three to two. What are the chances that out of 13,000 voters, it's going to be exactly three to two? You know, that, that's obviously evidence of tampering. It's like, well, maybe, maybe that, that ratio is, is super weird, but you need to weigh that against every precinct in the country and every possible outcome. And the combinatorics of it are impossible. And then you also have to weigh it against the fact that like, you expect Russian hackers to be so smart they can remotely break into our voting machines software when these things sit in the basement of the community center in the middle of Peoria or whatever like that, that they have the intelligence. Yeah. Powered off that they have the intelligence to do these massive cyber, uh, you know, hacking, whatever operations and not the intelligence to like buddy up the vote numbers. So it doesn't look like a perfect ratio. Come on.
1: Like, is there, value in
2: opening,
1: yeah, is there value in opening that data up and you know putting it in the open and, and sort of throwing it at interested parties who are able to do that data analysis and maybe don't have the same bias toward, yes, this looks like exactly what I was expecting?
2: There are some people that do that. I don't know if, if voting data is made public universally, but there, there definitely is are people that do that. Um, open government people do a lot of that work. There's definitely efforts... To do that, it's just, it's very difficult. It's not like, you know, these things aren't storing data in nice JSON blobs. It's very messy. It's very hard to reconcile system to system, precinct to precinct. So yeah, people are definitely working in that space, but I think it would be great if we could invest some time, money, and energy into that, but we are not currently at that
0: place. Um, yeah, I don't even know where that money would come from.
2: Federal government would be ideal.
1: So, but there is value in doing Statistics in the open and data analysis in the open and science in the open.
2: Yeah, open data and open science is, is an amazing nascent field. There's a lot that's happening in that space. I'm actually giving a talk uh, soon about the role of open science and open data. And it's kind of an interesting corollary to open source technology. There's a lot of similarities and there are some key differences in, in how we approach it. But yeah, it's not necessarily universally true that the more data, the better, because not all data really needs to be in the open or should be in the open. But the more people that can independently assess the data and the results generally tends to be better.
0: Is that basically a variation of uh, many eyes make all bugs shallow?
2: Yeah, pretty much, in a sense. What it really does is it expands the process of peer review and it challenges the uh, traditional academic model of peer review. And in doing so, it allows for better processes to be developed on how we review science, how we promote science, how we cite science. There are a number of challenges to this in that this is one narrow part of the scientific research process that we're trying to retrofit to uh, something that looks like uh, software engineering praxis, but we also have to do all of the other stuff. Like it doesn't work to just do this one part and not all the rest. So there are some really interesting people working on that. Brian Nosick is uh, the director of the Center for Open Science which is actually here in Charlottesville. He's also a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, and he's doing a lot of work in the replication crisis that's happening in the field of psychology right now, um, where many key results, key findings in the in the field of psychology are not able to be replicated. Um, So his whole career is kind of, I wouldn't say his whole career, but a lot of his work is driving towards making tools available for researchers to, uh, stem this off at, at the pass and prevent these kinds of issues from from cropping up because they can be damaging, uh, really long term damaging. People's careers are being found to have been wasted because they chased a thread that was false for thirty years.
1: And I imagine there's some institutional res- resistance to open science, especially in academia, where a lot of studies are published in paywall journals. Um, the peer review process is very steeped in tradition. So there must be a tremendous amount of resistance to any effort to open that up.
2: It is. This is a very uphill battle. It's an uphill battle against the publishers um, who are very resistant to open access. It's a, a barrier to the tenure model in academia. And it's a certainly a big, a big challenge for uh, getting people on board with uh, how to verify uh, data. But what's happening is there's more and more success stories that are coming out of, out of this model um, that are making it really compelling. Like there's still some people that doubt that there's a replication crisis in psychology to begin with, but the evidence is leaning against them. but there's there's some interesting things that have come out of this to transition to what I was talking about earlier with with my talk. Um one of the things that has happened, it happened last year uh, where a self- proclaimed researcher published a, a study on OkCupid data. Now, this was interesting because OkCupid periodically uses their blog to publish internally studied uh, phenomenon for their users. So how many users are straight? How many users are gay? What do men respond to most in, in, a, in a message versus women? That kind of thing. So what happened last May was that uh, somebody dumped a bunch of data and studied a bunch of OkCupid users. And uh, this got publicized uh, on Twitter. So we took a look at it. And I was one of the first people to actually take a look at this data because I was bored and I was leaving my job and I didn't have much to do. So I was like, script. And as it turns out, this student, he was a Danish student. He scraped 70,000 users' data and then put it all in a CSV and uploaded it to the Open Science Framework without anonymizing it.
1: Holy so oh my. he
2: basically doxed 70,000 users and published a preprint along with it. And reading the preprint, it was even more heinous. And what he was doing was he was trying to use OkCupid data to justify a hypothesis. That religious people were less intelligent than non-religious people. And that on that basis, Muslim refugees should be denied entry to Denmark. So he was using this, this open science framework to justify a, a, a really phony psychology study with really racist objectives. And in doing so, he violated research ethics. He violated just the scientific method. In general, and he actually violated European privacy law in the process, allegedly. I don't know what the results of that investigation were, but also it had a lot of ripple effects because it brought up the question: What is the role of the repos in protecting user data? What is the role of the repos in ensuring that research is done ethically? And so, what happened was I looked at this this report and I wrote up a blog post and shared my findings. And a couple other people looked at the report and and came up with similar uh, analyses. That the research was unethical, it was wrong, it was immoral, um, and that, by the way, don't dox 70,000 users, what the hell is wrong with you? And in receiving this criticism, he tried to hide behind this wall of, but I've made my research open. It's open Mm. data. It's open science. You can't criticize me for ethical violations. I have liberated the data to the world. And that becomes an interesting question because that's an ethical dilemma. Like, we want to liberate data, we want to make things open, but how far is too far? And when do we draw that line? It's a really fascinating thing that I thought was a very small thing when I got into it. And it has it ended up turning into being a huge story in the open science kind of world that ended up changing policies on how the repos act.
0: And when you say the repos, you mean the uh, open source data repositories that are doing all this stuff? Okay.
2: So Open Science Framework is, is one of them run by the Center for Open Science, and there are a couple others out there.
0: And it's remarkable to me,
1: even with data that has been scrubbed and anonymized, there was a study that I remember hearing about on NPR last year about some company that released demographic data that was supposedly anonymized. And someone actually went through the data and was able to identify individuals just based on the demographic characteristics. And I know for me myself, personally, if you know my first name and the fact that I'm transgender and I live in Chicago, you can find out everything you want to know about me.
2: Yep. Yeah, same thing with me. It's really interesting. There's people that are experts on de-identification and it's a it's a hard problem. And it's an interesting problem because HIPAA requirements have anonymization requirements. And there's a question of like, at what point is are we doing good enough? At what point do we just say, okay, the, stati- the statisticians will
1: always win? <laughs> right. So Probably. Probably. What about data that's deliberately tampered with? What kind of impact can that have?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting problem. In the science world, that's not a new problem. You know, falsifying data has is considered to be a grievous ethical violation of every academic principle, uh, and science has certainly dealt with this for years, decades. Uh, well, actually, longer than that. But it's interesting in the machine learning world because you have algorithms that are very sensitive to training data, and yeah, you can really screw with an algorithm by giving it a bunch of false data. And people are doing that. People are We know that there are, are hackers out there that are wanting to take advantage of algorithmic systems, and so they, they flood them with bad data in whatever way they can, knowing that that system will adapt to that bad data and give them favorable outcomes in return. Uh, you can argue that high-frequency trading is doing just that legally, but yeah, I mean, definitely people are absolutely positively doing this. People are spinning up Lambda instances on AWS and throwing data at systems at scale to do this.
1: So what end? I mean, can you give me an example of, of a consequence of something like that?
2: You know, search engines, they, they adapt to whatever's being linked to the most, that kind of thing. So people will use this knowledge to spin up pages that have these links and wait for Google to index them and then take them down so that they can bubble up a site to the top. That's part of how like the fake news stuff worked where stories would happen and if you know that the story is about to break you can pre-populate all of that so that when google when people google like did hillary's emails expose her or whatever you've already forced the link that you want to be at the top to the top and it's all garbage data it's all bad it's all bad data other examples of this are like if you want to try to block logins from a certain region you can spam a login service it could be a financial institution it could be a medical institution knowing that their systems will look at that traffic and start denying traffic from that region. So if you wanted to lock somebody out of, say, their investment account, you could do that if you knew that uh, the login systems for that institution were using machine learning to try to squash denial-of-service attacks, that kind of thing.
1: And that's one of those situations where people are not looking at the failure modes of the systems rebuilding.
2: It's it's very much uh, reactive. It's very hard to predict all of these things. And, yeah, we're often just deploying and we're asking for forgiveness later uh, or asking our ops and security people to bail us out. When I say we, I mean as an industry, not as a company. I don't speak for simple.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So you may have noticed that Greater Than Code is no longer a weekly show. We've moved to a biweekly format because we're having money problems. We need to raise more money to sustain a weekly show. There are a lot of things that we want to do with that money, including – fairly paying our editor and producer. Um, but we also want to do things like listener perks and swag that we'll send out to people in our Slack community who go, above and beyond. Um, we want to do conference appearances. We've talked about doing a live podcast at a conference. We have a lot of big plans, but we need your help. Um, if you can pledge at any level at patreon.com slash greater than code, every donation is appreciated. We are proud of the fact that we've been listener funded for 37 episodes. We're also open to corporate sponsorships. If you, your company cares about the things that we're talking about and wants to invest in the kind of conversations that we have, they can go to greaterthancode.com slash sponsors, and um, please talk to your companies about this. We want to continue delivering great content and have the conversations that no one else is having, but we definitely need your help to do that. We are very excited to announce that we've been selected as this month's Fund Club project. Each month, Fund Club emails members their new pick, a project, initiative, event, or organization focused on diverse communities and technology. Members give $100 to that month's selection. Fund Club doesn't manage your money or ask for it up front. You submit payment directly to the recipient project. Fund Club so far has raised nearly $200,000 for projects like ours. We are so delighted to join the ranks of projects that Fund Club has helped, including TransHack, People of Color in Tech, I Need Diverse Games, Right Speak Code, and Mother Coders. If you want to sign up for this amazing program, you can find more information at joinfundclub.com. I think we can go to um, reflections then. Um, so reflections is when we look back at the conversation that we've had and talk about what was particularly salient or a call to action or in some, in any way made us think. And, um, I'll go first. I think the, what you talked about with the brainstorming sessions to consider all the ways that something can fail, um, ranking failures on severity of harm, probability of harm when a failure occurs and detectability of failure and harm if it occurs. That's something that I want to personally work at to bring to the projects that um, that I work on at work and outside of work. That kind of thinking, that kind of systems thinking and planning for bad outcomes, as we discussed, is not something that, that happens often enough in our field, and it should. So I think I'm going to do what I can to institute practices like that at my next job. So thank you for that.
0: Well, I'm definitely going to have to go back and listen to this entire episode again because I have a feeling there is a lot that I'm going to learn when I do so. Our conversation about what it's like to work in, uh, say, a military contractor or what it might possibly be like to work for somebody making um, election software uh, was really an interesting and useful reminder to me that the uh, the world that I live in and the kind of software development practices that I take for granted really are extraordinarily niche, uh, more so than I like to think about. And uh, so I'm going to have to contemplate what it might take to bring some of these practices that I find useful out into the broader world. And, you know, at the same time, what I might find of value in what I think of as the dark programming universe that might be useful to me. So thank you.
2: Yeah, no problem. I like reflecting on that dichotomy when I'm at tech conferences, because Tech conferences tend to be really decadent, uh, especially the big ones. I was just at JSConf in Berlin, and it was like they had like this wild opening sequence, and you know, flashing lights and and drum and bass, and it was just really extravagant and interesting. And it was such a difference from coming from that academic corporate world where conferences were like in the banquet hall of the Holiday Inn outside of the airport and it was everyone wore a suit and tie and it was the same people that have known each other for 30 years and the same grudges that go back 30 years for me uh it was a really stark difference between the industries Um, and i like to reflect on it when when i'm in that because it's like obviously i prefer the decadence and the and the dance music but um it was an interesting path for me to get from from one place to the
0: other Well, thank you, Emily. This has been a really fascinating conversation. And uh, I've really enjoyed getting to talk to you for a little bit more than we do on Twitter. And uh, to our listeners, thank you again for sticking with us through another episode. I hope that you have learned something as well. And uh, we'll be back at you in two weeks. Bye, everybody.